0: Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in Science Fiction and Politics. What we're going to be basically doing is, we'll never go through more than one book in a a class. So, basically what we're going to be doing is this book, The Foundation, Isaac Asimov's Foundation, today. And I'm going to start it off with talking about it so that you'll get an idea of the pattern, okay? And then we're going to be talking about the second book on Thursday, and then the, the third book after that on next Tuesday. So it's going to be, it's foundation, and then foundation and empire, and then second foundation. And while we're doing all of that, we're going to be interweaving Information from this book, the little book, okay, the mm. Stephen Howe's book, Empire, a very short introduction. But we're going to start getting into the basic stuff on on empires uh, today. But to start it off, and then what we're going to do later is uh, we're going to be having presentations. All of us will be doing presentations that'll be sort of following the similar type of format, just so we can get used to it. But there's a couple things I wanted to show you with regard to what I was talking about on Thursday about science fiction giving an you an a way of thinking differently coming out of things differently there's uh, Steve Jobs head of Apple Computer, Pixel and uh, he, he had a statement when he was at Stanford last year and he had was doing the commencement speech he had a statement that I got out of the New York Times And this is January 20th, Friday, 2006, just passed. And it said, Steve Jobs said to the graduating class, now, mind you, he had about a pancreatic cancer not too long before that. So he's fine now, but this is what he said. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. Well, you see, what you do when you're in high school is you basically become really good at taking standardized tests, you become really good at following along what everybody does, and then in college you've got to break that mold. See, you're still learning information in college, you're still learning stuff, but when you graduate from college, you've got to be able to do something original, because once you get out of college... It's your originality that's going to make the whole bit of difference. You've got to put your mark on stuff. (coughs) You've got to either become somebody who's original or you're dead weight once you get out of college. So the learning that you do through high school is fundamentally not very productive for doing what you need to do once you leave college. And when I mean by leaving college, I mean leaving undergraduate college, so when you go to graduate school, for example. So if you do graduate work and get a PhD in something, you've got to come up with an original dissertation. You've got to do something new, or you won't get it. You know, or someone who doesn't do anything new can't get a job. You have to do something new. You have to be able to break out of the box. So you see, the high school preparation is actually it's very good. It's very productive. You need those skills that you learned in high school, but it's got that rigorous type of squashing the individuality to get into college, because you have to go through standardized, the very definition of standardized evaluations to get into universities, so you get ranked according to standards. Well, all of that goes away when you're in the real life, after, after you're done with your undergraduate, you've got to make a mark. So that's what Steve Jobs is talking about, and that's what science fiction enables you to do. It's a really good first step from being able to think differently. Who's the co-founder of of uh, Microsoft that started a science fiction museum? Is it
1: the same? <coughs> is the same guy who funded that um, that airplane or the yep. the X plane? Yeah. I don't remember his name, but he's almost as rich as Gates, and he funds all sorts of. What's that? He's almost as rich as Bill Gates, and he funds yeah. all sorts of little things like that. Yeah, chip, that I, yeah. You know,
0: he's, he's actually his name is slipping my mind too, but I think it's Paul Allen
1: maybe
0: yeah I'll come in next week I'll come in on Thursday with it for sure uh, I, I'm pretty sure that's it but anyway he's the same and he, and he, and he funded the Burt Rutan yeah. uh, X1 plane that got 60 miles up into the space privately Privately, and he also funded the Science Fiction Museum out in Seattle so you see people that are in the cutting edge of tech high tech stuff is are really important with regard to thinking differently coming up with coming up with new types of things Anyway, so that's what we get from science fiction. We get a practical way to approach the idea of how to think differently, how to come up with different ideas. And science fiction really throws us out there. And when we try to reorient, we then have uh, an ability to try to, well, in order to understand science fiction, you have to get out of the mold. Anyway, that's very similar with poetry. If you underst- To understand poetry, you really have to get out of the mold and sort of talk about it. You know, from where, from sort of from le- everything is from left field. For example, when I was taking poetry classes at Rutgers, a professor would read a poem, and then he would wait for people to comment. He said, "What do you think about this line? What do you think about that line?" And by and large, it was very difficult. It was like pulling teeth from the class. And it wasn't that the class was was a bunch of idiots. We were all you know bright young kids, but. We had been trained to think in a standard way, and when you look at poetry to come at the whole idea of poetry is to have a whole bunch of unusual meanings coming at you from all different directions in each line and so it was very difficult for many for many people. The best class I ever took at Rutgers was of course with william Phillips, William Phillips, and he was the Editor of Partisan Review, and it was, Partisan Review was one of the. It's, it's. I think it's. It's either shut down or it's shutting down now. It's. It's closed down after a long period of time. But it was a. It was a premier liberal forum, where. You know, liberal intellectuals coming out of Europe and also in the United States were able to, voice themselves often for the very first time. They were discovered by people like. William Phillips, and he used to sit, I remember I was taking it, I believe it was a senior seminar, and he had about 12 students, 10 students in his office, we were sitting there, and he would ask us questions, and we would all try to answer, and almost everything we said was wrong, it was just like, he was just like, I just really frustrated with absolutely everybody we couldn't say anything right and it really wasn't that we were we weren't saying idiotic things it's just that we weren't saying anything original we were giving canned responses and he could recognize those canned responses because an editor of partisan review has to be able to recognize you know he has to be able to recognize a James Baldwin when he sees one you get somebody like James Baldwin writing in you realize this is original prose original writing that is spectacular. You'll be able to see that. And we were giving canned answers and there was this one kid who had shoulder length blonde hair with a leather jacket and he sold motorcycles after class. (laughs) And he was just weird. And he would just sit back in his chair and after everybody else said something, he would say something. And it was always something really off the wall that we all thought was just nuts. And William Phillips would lean forward and say, that was really good, that was cool, that was very interesting. And we got so frustrated throughout the entire semester because this kid was just saying things that were so out of the ordinary. Yet William Phillips was saying, that was so such a bright observation of Joyce, Kant, Kafka, whatever we were discussing. This, this guy, this kid had answers that were enlivening. William Phillips and we were trying to think of canned responses that were just we were racking our brains saying what would he like what would he like to hear what would he like to hear and nothing we said when we said what would he like to hear matched because he knew that we were asking those questions in our minds what would he like to hear and then but the kid with the long blonde hair and a motors and a leather jacket selling motorcycles he didn't care what he, William Phillips wanted to hear he said what was his interpretation that was on his mind it was always original then finally, finally, the, William Phillips had three poems that were sent in, and he read them to the class, three poems. And he wanted us all to get an idea of what it's like to be an editor. So he said, let us uh, all read these, and he read them out loud to us, and, that, uh, and then he said, now you evaluate them. Pretend you're in my seat. Pretend you're the editor of Partisan Review. How would you rank these? And so he read the three poems. And we all dutifully went around and said, well, we like this one better or oh, that one better and gave reasons for it. And then the kid with the long blind hair and the black leather jacket selling motorcycles after class, he finally raised his hand. He was the last one to speak. And he said, I liked poem number three. Now, number three was clearly the worst. It was written by, it was just an idiotic poem. It was just really stupid. And anybody could realize that. And then William Phillips leaned forward and said, "Uh, that's really shocking. And we all looked at each other and said, we got him now. The kid with the blonde hair is going down today. (laughs) William Phillips, he picked the wrong poem. And William Phillips said, I'm actually sort of surprised. Why did you you pick that poem? it's, It's sort of surprising from you especially. Why did you pick that poem? And we realized everything. The jig was up. He was over. And it was the end of the blonde kid with the leather jacket and the motorcycles. And then the kid leaned back and he said, Because it's such a preposterous thing to ask us to evaluate three poems on one reading. Poems have subtle meanings that you have to find out. The, uh, the ambiance between the lines It's such a stupid thing to ask us to do. It can't be done. So I picked that one. William Phillips, and then we said, "Oh my gosh, he's going down with flames today. It's a big one. He's rejected William Phillips. What he wanted, to, what he asked us to do." William Phillips leaned back and said, "Ah, yes, you're absolutely correct. Profound. You can't do it." And we were all wrong again. <laughs> and, and we were just ready to melt in our seats. The kid with the long blind hair with the black leather jacket and the uh, sold motorcycles after class, he did it again, he beat us. But you got the idea? What did William Phillips value? It was originality. It was the thinking differently. Even thinking differently and what and even thinking differently than what William Phillips was thinking. So anyway. That's, that was a really powerful class for me. It took me many, many, it was the most important class I've ever taken, besides my Milton classes, my classes on Milton. But that class with William Phillips, I never really got till years later. I just thought about it and thought about it every day that I was in class. I let it just mull over in my mind, and it eventually made a profound impression on me. Pro- I mean, I mean, it made a profound impression on me then. But I just was very frustrated. I didn't understand it. But as the years went on, I said, "Wow, that was a great class." He didn't. He didn't just give me information which I was supposed to understand. Just right then and there, he told me that there was. He he told me, and in, in his own indirect way that my thinking was flawed, that it was too mechanical, that it was too canned, that it was not original. And it took me years to sort of sort that out. Anyway, that was a great lesson. Isaac Asimov, the foundation novels. Okay, we're starting with the foundation. Let's, Let's go through some of this. We'll just do this one today. And there's a lot of political stuff in here. Now remember when you come to class, you've got to at least have read the one novel for today and it doesn't take long, these things go real fast, but the basic thing when you start your own presentations is you'll have a very brief summary and then you'll be able to focus on passages that you find and the brief summary is like one or two minutes just to to summarize the basic plot and then you focus on a passage and you get to read a passage and then you get to discuss it, and then we all discuss it. And my goal is to be a bit like, as much as I can, to be like William Phillips. So if you're looking for the good passage that you think Courtney Brown will really like, and you're looking at all the pointed things, all the the, the sort of the bullet points that you think would be right, my goal is to, if, if you pick something really original and come up with interesting ideas, and I'll say, hey, that's original, that's very interesting, good ideas, but if it's canned stuff, like William Phillips, my goal is to get you to, uh, to use the science fiction for what it's supposed to be used for, which is to get you to think differently. So my goal is to sort of challenge what you're thinking a bit, not necessarily to give you the right answer, because there is no right answer, but to get you to think so it's your own answer. Okay? Because when you graduate, remember when you graduate as a senior, all the canned ways of standardized thinking don't work anymore. Well, of course, you need a little bit of that to get into graduate school, to get into law school, stuff like that. But to do your own original work, which is what you're ultimately going to need to do, you're going to have to be your own person. Okay, well let's turn to page 12. Now the Foundation (coughs) series has a basic plot (coughs) in the very first novel. Starts it off, foundation, and the guy. And the as- the idea is that there is a person who's essentially developed not out of whole cloth. There was a an initial very primitive beginning of it before him, but he developed the science of psychohistory, and the psycho part really should have been spelled P-S-I rather than P-S-Y-C-H-O, but that was psychology. And we don't really realize the psychology component of it until later, but basically the the idea is the merging of psychology with uh, a mathematical understanding of history. And the galactic empire is collapsing, and we don't really see much of the galactic empire in this novel. The novel really starts out with the collapse of the galactic empire, what we see throughout all of the Foundation series is not the collapse of the original galactic empire, but the building up of the new galactic empire. So really what we see here, this is a novel where we see the, the, the building of an empire, an empire from scratch. So what we have is psychohistory, which is a combination of mathematics, and what we find out is very deep psychology. And as the galactic empire is collapsing, the foundation is, is established, which is a, a library project out in a backwater planet on the edge of the galaxy called Terminus. And its goal of Terminus is to take the best scientists in all of Trantor, which is the head of the, galac- of, the gal- of the head of the galactic empire, and put them out there so that they can be saved and their descendants can be saved, and that sort of that genetic pool and that information pool, the library and all the people that are intellectuals, can be preserved from the collapse of the galactic empire, and then the galactic empire can be brought back, and the library project turns out to be that they're originally sent, for, sent out for is a ruse just to get the people out there. The real thing is they're supposed to be a center for bringing out the, a new galactic empire. There's also another foundation, a second foundation, uh, that's talked about somewhere else, and we find out about that later on. But, okay. So this is the story of Terminus, the foundation that's a library, originally a library project That's supposed to shortcut the 30,000 year rebuilding process for the Galactic Empire into a 1,000 year rebuilding process for the Galactic Empire, eliminating 29,000 years of suffering. Okay, so that's the end of the summary. You see how quick the summary was? Just to get the basic idea of what's going on. So we're starting off with the first book, which is the beginning of the first, the third of the, it's the first third of the beginning of the new Galactic Empire coming up. Let's go to page 12. And this is this is the end of uh, chapter 2 okay and it's the second paragraph in this entry for the Encyclopedia Galactica. actually this is the beginning of chapter three okay and it's the entry for Trantor. So we look at this. is everyone on page 12? Its urbanization progressing steadily had finally reached the ultimate. All the land surface of Trantor, 75,000 f- I'm sorry, 75 million square miles in extent was a single city. The population at its height was well in excess of 40 billions. This enormous population was devoted almost entirely to the administrative necessities of empire and found themselves all too few for the complications of the task. It is to rem- be remembered that the impossibility of proper administration of the Galactic Empire under the uninspired leadership of the later emperors was a considerable factor in the fall. Daily fleets of ships in the tens of thousands brought the produce of 20 agricultural worlds to the dinner tables of Trantor. Its, independence upon the, its dependence upon the outer worlds for food and indeed for all necessities of life made Trantor increasingly vulnerable to conquest by siege. In the last millennium of the empire, the monotonously numerous revolts made emperor after emperor conscious of this, and imperial policy became little more than the protection of Tranter's delicate jugular vein. Okay, what's going on with this? What do you see about this? What do we, what do, what, what's political that you see about this that you can project out? With regard to empires and even to the, you know, any you can make a lot of comparisons between this and any large government government that has extensive influence outside, such as outside of itself, such as the United States. Go ahead. It is. It's I'll more
2: difficult for a like, government to govern places far away from them. opening the your and with that. So okay. Speak
0: them. a little louder because it's a little muffled here. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, it's difficult for a, any government to like control. A place very far from its central power for an extended period of time without a military backing for that. that. Because here it says that the planter was constantly under siege and that one emperor fell another replaced him, and that would fell as well. So they didn't have the full backing of the military, so it was impossible for them to actually hold on to this central government because of the extended reach.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. The, the the difficulty of dealing with everything with from remote control when you're having a central government like that. Uh, yeah, go go ahead, Jason. Well,
1: <coughs> I mean, I didn't I not really understand that because one of the interesting things about the Foundation novels is that people can travel from point to point instantaneously. Yeah. And they can communicate instantaneously, so it doesn't seem like governing far-reaching worlds would be that difficult. They
0: didn't have
2: of the well they have the
0: ships day. and it takes time to go from one
1: place to the next. Well, they didn't have instantaneous communication, but isn't that how the guy got to Trantor? He took a little he took a ship that did the hyperspace jumps or yeah, something. But yeah, but still, it still takes a
2: while to like <coughs> they say that it takes a while to calculate the jump mm-hmm. in, in later on in the book. So it's an, it is instantaneous cover, but it takes days or weeks just to plan this single jump. There's so much mathematical data
0: involved. I think what we can say, though, is that the issue of how long it takes to travel isn't a component of the novel. They're really not he, Asimov is really not focused on whether it took a day, a week, mm. a minute, uh, two weeks. So we can, for all intents and purposes, say that he was essentially talking about instantaneous travel, even though it might have taken two weeks or months mm-hmm. to get to one place to the next. And it just
1: seems like incredibly like poor planning, I guess to not have like, any source of food on your planet. I mean, I mean, may- maybe it's just me, but it, like they encased the entire thing in steel, but then somewhere later on they mentioned that somebody's father might have worked in a hydroponic farm on some planet. Like, maybe they ought to have had hydroponics on Trantor instead of like building it up and cover it in metal. Because, I mean, y- you just think someone ought to have planned that a little better.
0: Yeah, it does seem to be odd, and this actually goes back to what Adele was thinking, that it's so difficult to control everything from abroad when you're actually so dependent on everything. What What else? Who else has something to say about it?
3: It's like a super-sized bureaucracy. I mean, the whole planet was just tending to administrative needs. It wasn't like we were doing jobs here. They are just tending for the em- whole empire, so it was like... You know, like the bureaucracy we have right now, we have this whole structure where, you know, but it was like a super-sized... I just thought maybe corruption could have been... Because, I mean, there's no way every single person was tending to the emperor's needs or what he wanted for the empire. I mean, 40 billion people, I mean, you know what I mean? So, yeah. corruption probably could have been another... Doubt 75 billion. He might not have mentioned, but, I mean, obviously that's always the case.
0: Yeah. Yeah, 40 billion is a lot of people and there would be corruption in any large central central thing but what are we all sort of looking at uh, Adel uh, Jason and Saint of all mentioned something that it seems like sort of a the really stupid way to do things isn't it I mean they're sort of they're decentralized they can't grow their own food it's difficult to control things outside and there's going to be with that much centralization there's going to be opportunities for corruption
1: at the same time in this book, an Empire, they were talking about how like centralization of government was one of the aspects of a very strong empire that i mean part of that was Excellent, that you yeah. couldn't delocalize your control because then you started getting autonomous individuals in different places if you didn't have a centralized government
0: in fact, you can't even have an empire, and that's the whole definition of an empire you've got to have you've got to have that centralization component yeah. to it well. What do you see here that's sort of similar to, let's say, any <coughs> large situation? <coughs> what do you see here? If, uh, compare it to what's going on in the United States, for example. That's the whole advantage of science fiction. You have to bring it back to to make it relevant, to make to have it make it have that advantage. You have to rele- bring it back to the current.
1: You can sort of link it to Japan. I, I mean, you can link the U.S. to Japan. I mean, it's like our exports versus imports with Japan. Uh, and China,
0: China is the big one China's right the now. the big
1: one, but um, just how we're importing so much more than we're exporting.
0: How much are we importing and exporting with regard to China?
1: Yeah. They take
2: about one dollar of ours, and we get six. We
0: take six. Yeah, it's one to six. So the, the Chinese buy one dollar of our stuff for every six dollars that we buy of their stuff. And
1: since food is an issue for us, it's. All, I mean, but I mean, comparatively, it's almost the same thing as in foundation. I mean. Because we work on the import-export basis, that's yeah. what fuels our economy. And right now, we're now what,
0: what kind of things are, is China? That's that's great. That's great. Let me focus a little bit on that. What you're saying right now. What kind of things are China? Is China manufacturing technology? Technology. When you see advertisements <coughs> on TV about what we're selling abroad, what are we selling?
2: Surface grain. Sometimes we sell. It. What's that? Surface grain. Sometimes grains. Uh, the U.S. has a huge surplus of grains, so they generally
0: sell a lot of that to as well. Yeah, you're, you're saying grains, is that right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, grains. What did we used to? What was it used to be with the developing world and the developed world? Wasn't it that the developing world sold produce, raw materials, raw materials, bananas, and we were the ones who sold technology? What's now happening?
2: Flip flopping. What's that? Split flopping we're shop. flip-flopping,
0: exactly right. We're the ones selling the produce. And the developing world, China, they're selling the technology. So what What? What, did, you know, what actually happened?
1: But, I mean, do you think that's due to technological stagnation in the U.S.? We I mean, do you think we, like, quit innovating? That, that wasn't, like, a combative question. I'm sorry, I just...
0: It's a great question.
1: Well, no, I just I felt like this sounded kind of combative. I didn't, didn't do it. I was just. I just <laughs> Please asked. come back. Do you, but I mean, do you think that that's due to technological stagnation? I mean, did, did we just sit still and let the world pass us by? Or what do you think?
0: What would I, If you saw this phenomenon, you were a, a space alien coming and just sort of seeing the planet for the first time and you noticed that, what would you conclude?
1: Well, first, I'd look at population density. I mean, there are so many more people in China. Or okay. Like population. To, I mean, the technological innovation is almost a necessity of life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's actually recent, though, too. Let's look at India also. India is another example of this type of thing. India has a billion people, also. Mm. How large is India's middle class? That's exactly, exactly on a comparison with our middle class: Starbucks, SUVs, the works, shopping malls. Exactly. How large is their middle class? Much more. What's that?
2: Then compared to like that.
0: Well, i got news for you. It's actually not. It's relatively, as a proportion of the population, smaller than ours. But how many in numbers?
2: A lot numbers.
0: In numbers, it's uh, about 260-280 million people. What's the population of the United States?
3: 300 million.
0: Pardon me? Three hundred million. Yeah, it's actually in October they think it's gonna be three hundred million. So it's about three hundred million. It's gonna clip over this year into the to the actual thing. So the three hundred millionth baby is gonna be born sometime in October and it'll be all over the news and things like that. Well, that means that their middle class, their middle class is approximately the same size as the entire population of the United States. Now they may have seven hundred million poor people, but they've got almost 300 middle-class people and those people are ferociously driving towards technology India and China are racing to the top they're not they're not focusing on you know low-level stuff they want to get to the top and to dominate and they're competing against each other and high-tech is it science and math creative stuff and what have we done well our educational system Now, mind you, they have a lot of problems still, India and China. But you add 100 years to India and China, you see a dominance. You see they're on the trajectory to dominate. And what you really see in the United States, if you listen to people like Thomas Friedman in The New York Times, the opinion columnist in The New York Times, and Paul Krugman, people like that, according to them, and also Nicholas Kristof, the opinion column, uh, those people, really have been focusing on recently over the last year or so on the dumbing down of America, especially under the recent years over the last six years or so. There's really been a focus on it now. Bill Gates of Microsoft, uh, we brought up Paul Allen and Bill Gates twice today. Uh, Microsoft twice today. Bill Gates gave a talking to governors. I believe it was in Washington, D.C. I think it was in 2005, where the governors were being addressed by Bill Gates and he said, you have to change your educational system. And he wasn't talking about making minor modifications on the edges. He was saying you have to completely redo the educational system of the United States. It was designed to teach an elite of about 10% of the population to do intellectual things. And 90 percent of the population were supposed to be just kept off the streets until they were 18 years old. And then they were to take manual jobs, labor jobs, working jobs, factory jobs. It was just to keep them occupied. It really wasn't to train them to do big things. That's what our educational system is designed to do. And Bill Gates said, you have to stop that. You've got to completely redesign it so that everybody, everybody matters. And we have to push the edges, or we're going to miss this. Now, if you have a billion people in a country, well, in a middle class of 300 million, just in terms of numbers of people, you're going to get millions of people that are really good. Now, we're a relatively small country, 300 million people. You might think of this as humongous, but when you compare us to India and China, we're we're one-third the size or less. We're rinky-dink compared to those in terms of population. So we really have to perform well in order to maintain competitiveness. Singapore, for example, is really a very top-edge, small country that's really pushing the edge technologically with their education. They're always focusing on doing it, but they realize they're so small they really have to get it all right. They have to focus on their educational systems and Constantly work with their students become cutting edge they they 're really doing you know amazing economic stuff well, China and India have the right mentality in terms of pushing educational stuff and the United States is dumbing down what we have is we 're really good at producing lawyers and we 're pretty good at producing doctors and lawyers those two things and doctors heal people when they get sick, and lawyers let people sue each other. But if you look at our society, we don't put hardly any money into preventative maintenance for health care. So we'll ampute, amputate somebody's leg, but we won't pay for them to avoid diabetes in the first place. Do you get the idea? So we need to pay for the doctor to amputate the leg, or to deal with the blindness, or whatever. But we don't give any preventative care to s- prevent the diabetes or to ameliorate the problems in the beginning. Education stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Where'd regard- go?
1: <clears throat> I'm not sure I agree with that Bill Gates statement. Go ahead. I, 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 I really don't think the American educational system is geared towards teaching the top ten percent to become movers and shakers in the world and then leaving the bottom ninety percent off the street until they're eighteen. I think that the American educational system is much more directed at Culling the intellectuals out of the masses. Uh, I mean, I, I, I do. I think that every school in the United States now has some sort of Target or AP or IB or something, and then they have honors classes below that. I mean, I, I do agree that some people do end up with a better education coming out of high schools in America, but I feel like there are gradations and it's not black and white. I mean, I feel like, I, I mean, Albeit I went to a small private school, but I did, I went to a public middle school for a couple of years. And I would say that maybe 40% of the kids weren't in some honors or AP class. I'm, I mean, that's not to say that that's true everywhere, but I mean, I feel like you can't just 90%, 10%.
0: And that's that what, 90% that's what Bill Gates was arguing. And if you look at the end result, of where, of where the intellectual power is in the United States. Just look at the Nobel Prizes that are being won, won by the United States. How many of those Nobel Prizes were people that were trained here in the United States? It's not very often. It just doesn't happen very often. People are being trained elsewhere. And now we're in a post-9-11 situation, and we're having it, making it very difficult for graduate students to get visas to come to the United States. So people that are well-trained are going elsewhere. They're going to Europe. They're going to other universities in China. I was doing, I do mathematical politics. That's what I do. My specialty is nonlinear mathematical politics. And I was doing a search on a particular mathematical model that was of interest to me at the time, and I was just doing an internet search seeing who had been writing about it recently. And I came across this paper that was really good and flawless English and very in-depth discussion of, of this mathematical model in relationship to combat situations. And it, it had to deal with the Lanchester combat models. And, and I read it and I thought it was spectacular. I noticed that the author was Chinese. And then I just assumed, I didn't look at the affiliation. I just assumed he was at Harvard or something like that. And then at, after reading it, absorbing it, I looked I said, where is this guy? I'm going to look him up one time. Next time I'm at one of the meetings, because I'm a member of the Mathematical Association of America as well as Political Science Associations, he was in China. He was a Chinese scholar in China. He had, didn't have anything to do with the United States. I said, what? I said, this couldn't have happened 15, 20 years ago. This is, I said, but I read the article and I said, American scholars don't do good stuff like this. This is a great, I, said, I was so happy to see somebody writing a really cutting edge article. Then I looked again and I said, in political science, a mathematical application. It was in China. And the English was flawless, everything was flawless. Well, in the United States, we're really good at teaching political philosophy. But we're not really good at, in terms of massive numbers. Look at the end product. And what happened yesterday with Ford? He had
2: jobs. they have a big cutback. How
0: big was the cutbacks? 25
2: to 30,000 jobs.
0: 30,000, right? 30,000 jobs. And how many factories? Between
2: 20 and 40
0: companies. 14 factories.
1: Yeah, they're getting rid of the big one in Atlanta. Getting
0: rid of the big one in Atlanta. GM's closing factories, (coughs) Ford's getting rid of 30,000 people. Now, at the same time that Ford's getting rid of 30,000 people, other automobile companies are building factories, even in the United States. Now, one of the things that we are starting to notice is that some automobile companies, Toyota and so on, they've been, this is a true story, Thomas Friedman was talking about this in the New York Times. He said that a lot of these automobile companies had placed automobile factories in the southern, southern United States, like Tennessee and places like that. And recently they stopped doing that. And they put a factory up in Canada. And Thomas Friedman investigated and said, why did you choose Canada over someplace like Tennessee? You don't have unionization in the southern United States, so you don't have to deal with the unions. So Why? And the result was it was because the educational level of the workforce was so poor in the United States. They had trouble teaching <coughs> the automobile workers how to assemble the cars. They had to use cartoon picture diagrams. I'm not kidding. In they my were
2: town, we have the Mercedes plant where they build the M class and the R class. And where is that? In Tuscaloosa, Alabama.
0: Okay, in Alabama. Uh-huh.
2: And a lot of people that I went to high school with go straight out of high school into Mercedes. and. Okay. And I agree with Bill Gates because probably 10% of my class is actually, of my graduating class, will actually graduate from college.
0: Will graduate from college. Because they
2: were just, they were big. I went to a huge urban public high school. Yeah. um, Like in the middle of the projects. And that's where most of the kids came out of. And That's where they're going to be their whole lives. Because the teachers just, they don't, they're scared when they're there and they don't care enough to
1: educate them or
3: make them work over.
0: And when you get them at, go ahead.
1: Oh, no, I was just going to say, like, I agree with her too. Like, while there are, like, schools that, like, try to weed out, like, the more intelligent kids or whatever, there's still schools that just don't care. They're just trying to keep the kids off the street. Like, there's so many. Because I live in Michigan, so that there's a couple, like, areas there that are not, or they're very poor areas. And I don't think governments really realize how much the kids aren't getting educated, like, they don't, I mean, even the better teachers don't go to those, like, schools when really that should be the case and, you know, the other teachers go to the other ones. But I just think it's kind of sad that they don't even care. They just kind yeah. of push over.
0: Well, Bill Gates was talking about not a marginal improvement, Jason, but he was talking about a complete revamping. He was saying that you can't let 90% of the students, or even 50% of the students, fall through the cracks. To be competitive with China and India... For this century, you've got to get 90% of the students to do that type of stuff.
1: Well, see, that's a brilliant, broad generalization, which Bill Gates is great at making. But, like, in all actuality, how would you even go about that? Your teacher, first of all, your teaching force is not, I mean, I mean... to have 90% of students just being capable of going back out on keeping them off the streets until they're 18, 90% of your teachers have to be just capable of holding their interest until they make it to 18. I mean, you're talking about all of a sudden taking 80% of the teachers in schools and turning them from, you know, just miserable, like, you know, English sucks, but I'm going to have to teach it to you, into, you know, stellar teachers who can make, you know, the elite
0: intellectuals
1: of America come out of schools and it's
0: you should have written you should have written Bill Gates's speech. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about mm-hmm. making that level of educational commitment. That's what China and India are doing.
1: Well I mean the educational I mean I don't even see how you would physically do that. I mean well, to
2: put more money back in education, like I know that at least we put I went nothing. To school, they're putting all the special ed kids in our classes because they don't have the money to fund their own we, we
0: put very little money into education. Public education is crumbling in the United States. And Pardon me? That's the problem. Yeah.
3: How many kids go to public schools and, and private schools? Our private schools are excellent. I mean, they do, but our public schools, that's where most kids are. And everyone's right. They don't put much emphasis. Teachers don't care. They're not getting paid enough. You can't expect teachers to do a great job. They're getting paid 20000 and in I Georgia, mean, they're taking
2: away tenure, so. I mean, exactly. They're so doing
0: all types of things. And- you need to maybe
3: motivate your teachers, maybe put more money where, because they're saying, like, there's a lack of teachers. It's always been a problem with the lack of teachers in the United States. It's a lot, lot less people are going to the profession. But if you actually make it in the sense like, you know what, we'll pay you this much more, you have to. You have to make the effort. Or we're we going to fall behind you We're going to fall behind India and China because... Okay. But,
0: I
1: mean, again, where are you going to get that money I mean, from?
0: Well, I that's mean, the whole point. You have to. Be, the culture has to be supportive.
1: I mean, the culture has of, to be supportive, but, I mean, no, nobody is going to willingly say, here, take more money out of my pocket to put into the federal government.
0: That is the problem. America doesn't care that, is
1: that is the problem. But, 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 see, the thing is, America is already taking close to half of the of I mean the top what is it like the top ten percent of Americans pay like some ridiculous proportion of the taxes, and I mean those people are already paying like thirty eight or forty percent of their income into taxes. You can't ask those people to just turn over more of their money. As
0: taxes go, we have we have. Well, we have a better
1: system than England. Who got As taxes
0: go, we banks. have the lowest tax rate, even before the tax cuts that the current administration put in. We had the lowest tax rate in the in the in the developed world, except I think Greece might have a lower tax rate than us. But we were at the bottom of the barrel in terms of in terms of tax rate. And you started to see, and we were also having a, in terms of numbers called Gini coefficients, we were starting to have an increasing percent, the difference between the rich and the poor in terms of what percentage of the income of the nation are controlled by the top five or top ten percent was really spreading, so that the rich are getting much richer. And there is, just as you were saying it, you know, you're actually bringing up really good points. The rich are saying, we already pay a lot of taxes, why should we pay for more? Well, the argument for putting more money into education... This is what Isaac Asimov is actually talking about in a real sense. Just listen. The argument for putting more money into education is very hard to make. Because the rich people say, it's not me, it's not us, it's them over there. But then you have to flip it and you say, how did the rich people get their money? If it was, if it was just because they were great, then they could go to Somalia where there is no government and there is no taxes and they said well go there and make your money there they have to make their money here because they need the US infrastructure and the infrastructure is what allows them to make the money so you can say they're already paying a lot of taxes but the reality is they're using a lot of resources as well and what Bill Gates is really talking about is unless unless you start really heavily putting money back into the infrastructure the infrastructure begins to collapse And that's what Isaac Asimov is talking about here. There is a process when companies, nations, (coughs) empires become big. They start to stop putting in the basic infrastructure. They start to let things go. They start to rely on the periphery. And eventually, they start to decay.
1: And some of that is also like a purely American thing like I mean from the time you're born you're like inculcated that what's yours is yours and yeah, I mean and there's a lot of like you know we don't want the government meddling in our you know it's an
0: ideological thing in the United States you know. yeah. yeah what's That's mine I mean. is mine what's mine is not yours yeah and but I
2: mean, think that though like, it's not so much American as most of the western world now suffers so from like probably started and America could spread so far that uh, all over like Europe and the Western world, people are starting to have that mind is mine yours is yours, and we don't want the government involved. But even so, like in Europe, you still get more and more people like you said that America has a better taxation system than England. Against that, the English infrastructure is infinitely better than America. You have the NHS, which is free good health service. The schools are considerably smaller classes. <coughs> in schools here. I mean, here we're talking about thousands upon thousands of people in a school. In England, even the biggest public schools can barely reach a thousand, if you like.
1: It. But in addition, you're talking to an entirely different tax system where the English people got one pulled over on them when they got their income tax capped and then they got the VAT added to it. Because isn't the cumulative income tax for like 70% for some, for like, The upper class? They
0: tax more than us. I mean, it's Uh, it's no no question. But the issue is, are you going to invest in that infrastructure? Is there going to be a logical meaning? Is there something logical about maintaining the investment into the infrastructure to keep the empire going or to keep the nation going? And what Asimov was talking about is that there's a natural tendency for it to decay, for people who have the wealth to start hiding it for themselves covering it for themselves not keeping the larger infrastructure built up and to let the decay go thus it's in the interest of a rich person to buy the boat and the big piece of land and the plane and to get his or her stuff isolated from the rest of the country then to take some of that money and invest it into the country so that the so that the infrastructure of the larger country can last longer and grower. There's a natural tendency for things that are large to decay. That's what he's talking about. And that's what we have. We have the decay of that empire. And we start to see the results right now. And and, and you can look at the United States and say, oh, the other thing is companies are going to Canada because they have a national health care plan. $1,200 of every car that you buy from Ford pays for health care for the workers. Canada, you don't have any of that. It's a national health care plan. So you don't have to pay for that so they can have more inexpensive cars. <laughs> or, or was that $1,200 dealing with retirement? It's either retirement or health care. One of the two. I, I forgot. But anyway, the health care issue is a huge thing. It's a huge percentage of the price of a car. Okay. But let's move on so that we actually, you know, cover enough stuff of, of Isaac Asimov's. Let's go over to page 15. And... This is where the mathematician who was just visiting Terminus, I'm sorry, visiting uh, Trantor, yeah, to meet Harry Seldon, was looking out over, he had taken a a, a ride to the top of Trantor and the whole planet was covered in metal, (laughs) Okay, and and he was looking at it and he said, He could not see the ground. It was lost in the ever-increasing complexities of man-made structures. He could see no horizon other than that of metal against sky, stretching out to almost uniform grayness, and he knew it was so over all the land surfaces of the planet. There was scarcely any motion to be seen. A few pleasure craft lazed against the sky, but all the busy traffic of billions of men were going on, he knew, beneath the metal skin of the world." There was no green to be seen, no green, no soil, no life other than man. Somewhere on the world, he he realized vaguely, was the emperor's palace, set amid 100 square miles of natural soil, (coughs) green, and with trees, rainbowed with flowers. It was a small island amid an ocean of steel, but it wasn't visible from where he stood. It might be 10,000 miles away. He did not know. What do you get out of that?
3: Mean, they just engineered this world like. I don't
2: know.
1: Just, uh, I don't it know. almost seems like it was doomed to fail from the beginning. Even like the description that described it, it's really. Why
0: like, is it dark. doomed to fail?
1: Well, I mean, they're all like underground. They're not even like above. They're not even good enough to be above. Like soil and green and like all this <laughs> stuff like other nations are. They're just, like,
0: and what do you get when you have a metal world? Dependence, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. And they're too dependent on everyone else, they're not even... You're totally dependent. Now, let's take a look. They destroyed their world. But now look, aren't we doing the same thing on our planet? You see what's going on with global warming right now? Guaranteed, within your lifetime, you will be able to ride a boat over the North Pole in the summertime. The caps are melting. Florida, you worried about the 2000 Florida election? Hey, it won't even exist. <coughs> when the caps melt, Florida's underwater. And you're probably going to see a lot of that. The water is starting to raise already in some of the islands. But in your lifetime, you're going to see the caps melt. And when the caps melt, all that ice goes into the water. And the water's raised. And if you look historically, geologically, 10,000 years ago, there wasn't the Florida. Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't buy Florida property, but I don't know where the beachfront is eventually going to end up being. The point is, we're not thinking about the long term. Human species have a myopic understanding of things. We look at things from the short term only. From the short term, and we're burning ourselves off this planet. We're doing the same thing that Trantor did. We're making ourselves dependent technologically. We're buying all of our goods from China. We're using up our natural resources. And we're not creating new resources, even educational resources within the United States to be able to go for the long haul, to change something. You folks are going to live it. The environmental stuff is big time. You're going to live it. I mean, I don't have to predict it. It's just there. It's going to happen. Just look at the data. The the caps are melting. And it's very interesting that I can now talk to students and I can say, you know, in your lifetime you will be able to... In the old days it was, can you reach the North Pole? Can you reach the South Pole like Mary? Now you can just predict it in your lifetime you'll be able to take a pleasure cruise up to the North Pole for, be right on top of it. No planting of flags, but you can throw a popcorn into the ocean because <laughs> there'll be no land. What's the contrast here, though? You see the medal the metal of Trantor, but what's the contrast that Isaac Asimov is bringing at the same time? You have the medal of Trantor, but he's also contrasting it with
1: the Emperor's Palace.
0: The Emperor's Palace, and what's that all about? Well,
1: it's in the middle of this giant, 100 <coughs> square mile expanse of green. It's really green on the planet. And, I mean, it's just rather ostentatious.
0: It's ostentatious, for sure, but what does it tell you about the mentality of the leadership of an empire? They
2: care about themselves, yeah. maybe. The emperor has... Basically, all the power, whatever he wants. Alright, he
0: has all the power, all he wants. Where is he living? What kind of environment is he living? Looks like a utopia. What kind of. What, what does it look like? A hundred square miles Beautiful. of.
2: it's just. it's like a, his own deserted island, all
0: to himself. Natural soil, green with trees, rainbowed with flowers. Paradise. Paradise? Isn't it all delusional? So this is a symbol, you see. Isa Asimov is saying the leadership surrounds itself with a delusional re- sense of reality. The whole world is covered with metal, and the emperor, when he wakes up every day, he walks out and sees trees and green, as if it's all okay. He's not living. So what is he's not living the reality of the rest of his planet. And that was a the problem there. even mentioned that it was because of these late emperors
3: that were, they weren't good leaders. That was another reason for the fall of the empire because they thought everything was alright
0: but in yeah. reality, I mean, the empire was crumbling but they didn't they didn't see it. They're like, oh. They didn't see it. Mm-hmm. And how many people that, what was the cover of, what was it, Time or Newsweek where they had George Bush a few weeks ago in a bubble? Oh, yeah. It yeah, literally a giant, but did you see it? Mm-hmm. There was a bubble in the grocery store you see Time or Newsweek, I forget which one yeah, it was. It was like George Bush was in a bubble and and you know, can he get out? Can he see what's happening?
3: They talk about that on the Daily Show too. I mean, he he gets a certain amount of information? But like in our case, he gets no information coming to him.
0: Gets no information. He can't see what's happening. His it tax cuts. His, his tax cuts, which you know, he defends to the very last breath, we're bankrupting our nation. We're you're going into huge debt. I mean, you're going to have to pay it. I mean, all the people that are giving the government money to pay for the debt they're going to want that money back with interest and that means you you may be 18 19 20 years old now but when you become productive people 35 40 your taxes are going to be humongous you're going to have to pay for that
1: that's why we need the fair tax
0: Uh, you may need a fair tax but it's going to have to be a high tax Mm -hmm. and there's not going to be much left for infrastructure building because you're going to be basically indentured servants whether you're rich or poor, you're going to be paying off what, you know, and you can sort of say, but we're investing in the future because of the fight on terrorism. Well, the future is going to have their own fights on terrorism. They're going to, you're going to have your, their own problems, meaning when you become 35 and 40, you're going to have your problems. But you're also going to be paying for the problems that are higher. So you're going to have to pay for your problems as well as the current day problems. Talk about shifting the buck. And you're going to pay through the nose. Whether you're wealthy or not, you're going to pay. Your tax are going to go. The Chinese are giving us all this money, mostly. we're being a, They're buying U.S. bonds like crazy. Basically, a pile of worthless dollars, because dollars are only worth as much as you can buy with them. And you can't buy much with it. We're not manufacturing anything. So, the reality is they're eventually going to want to dump the dollars, and they're going to want to get the money back. And in which case, who are they going to pay for it? Who's going to do it? You're you're the ones who are earning dollars. You work here. You live here. You're going to have to pay for it. You see how the uh, and and the George Bush in a bubble. This is the type of thing. This has happened when countries become big. There's an isolation of the leadership.
1: This uh, <clears throat> this part here reminded me of um, that bad Kevin Costner movie.
0: Oh, what quite, Which one? one? Water world. Oh, Waterworld! <laughs> <Because laughs> yeah, like, it, like exactly. it was like a exactly.
1: premium on like just like a handful of Earth.
0: Yeah, it was a it was a water version of Trantor in a sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's actually that's not far away, which Well,
1: yeah. I mean, it was just it was just it was just this incredibly high premium placed on dirt, and I mean, right here it's you know 100 square miles where the Emperor lives. I mean, you yeah. Know, there's natural soil there. Yeah. So I mean.
0: Okay, let's 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 switch over to page 19 so we can keep going. We got six minutes left. 19. This is an entry in the Encyclopedia Galactica, the definition of psychohistory. And it starts out with Galdornick. He was a guy who was up just a few minutes ago on the top of Trantor looking out at all the horizon of metal. Galdornick, using non mathematical concepts, has defined psychohistory to be that branch of mathematics which deals with the reactions of human conglomerates to fix social and economic stimuli. Implicit in all these definitions is the assumption that the human conglomerate being dealt with is sufficiently large for valid statistical treatment. The necessary size of such a conglomerate may be determined by Selden's first theorem, which, a further nece- necessary assumption is, that the human conglomerate be itself unaware of psych- psychohistorical analysis in order that its reactions be truly random. The basis of all valid psychohistory lies in the the development of the seldom functions which exhibit properties congruent to those of such social and economic forces as... And it goes on. Well, the interesting thing I'd like to point out to you here is there's an emphasis here on the masses, on the large number of statistical stuff. Meaning, it's hard to predict what an individual will do. But it's more easy, it's easier to predict what the large numbers will do in aggregate, in statistical stuff. So what he's talking about is working with sufficiently large sample sizes to be able to figure out what's going to happen in the future. We do that with math all the time. We do population surveys, very accurate population surveys, uh, where we look at information from 2,000 people, getting a large enough sample size to be able to predict what the larger masses are going to be able to do. That's an element of psychohistory. Now, we're going to see later that he deals with the level of the individual with the psychology component in the second foundation, but the the, uh, uh, original component that's mathematical deals with probability and statistics that deals with large numbers. Now, this is a problem when you're dealing with mathematical stuff you're taking all the data of the past and bringing it with a mathematical model up to the current and then you're shooting the mathematical model ahead of the data from the current time point into the future to be able to predict into the future. Mathematical models are notoriously terrible for predicting the future based on the just, just statistical or numerical knowledge of the past. They're really good for explaining the past, what happened, but when you predict it a week or two out into the future, it's really hard to figure out what the stock market's going to do or whatever's going to happen in the future. Well, one of the things that we're going to see here is that the combination of you know psychic stuff, which is what the Second Foundation does, predicting into the future, seeing things, and the mathematical stuff of the past gets put together. So that you basically have targets, things that you can that are perceived into the future. There's a lot of telepathy and other stuff that comes out in the in the in the in the in the, in the models that come into the future, that, that in in the concept of psychohistory. But the basic idea is you have to combine the mathematical statistical stuff that's based on past stuff with targets that are based into the future, so that your mathematical models just don't go shooting into the future based on the past, but they go shooting into the future based on the past and aiming at certain things that are known to happen in the future. It's said combination helps to guide the mathematical models to a target. Okay, but the statistical thing, that was just something I wanted to, to bring up. Let me see, we're doing, okay, we've got just two more minutes, so let's look a little bit more on that. Turn the page to 21. At the bottom of 21, this is in chapter 4, Harry Seldon is talking to, to uh, Gal Dornick, and he's explaining how the probabilities work to predict the collapse of the empire, and he says, good, add to this the known probability of imperial assassination, vice-regal revolt, the contemporary recurrence of periods of economic depression and the declining rate of planetary explorations. And, he proceeded, as each item was mentioned, the new symbols sprang to life at his touch and melted into the basic function which expanded and changed. Each one of those things is something that you should know. It's called a variable. Each one of those things is the name of something that varies vice revolt, imperial assassination, contemporary recurrence of periods of economic depressions, declining rate of planetary explorations. Each one of those things is a variable. And those are things that have to be included in a model that explains not only the past, but is able to predict into the future. So what we basically have is the description of categories of information that we need to know about. And those things are called variables because they vary. Now there are two types of variables in any type of mathematical explanation. One is called the dependent variable, which is what you're trying to predict. In this case, the dependent variable is the collapse of the, <laughs> very broadly, the, the reason is the collapse of the galactic empire or some specific measure that would represent that. The other variables that he's talking about here, imperial assassination, vice-regal revolt, the contemporary recurrence of periods of economic depression, rate of declining rate of planetary explorations, those are the things that cause the dependent variable to act the way it does. So the dependent variable is what you're trying to explain. These other things are called independent variables. They are the things that cause the dependent variable to change. So if you have a measure that indicates, that is some type of a proxy measure for indicating the collapse of the, measuring the you know the rate of decline of the galactic empire, that's what you're using as a dependent variable, you're trying to explain that. Your independent variables are the things that are causing the decline in the galactic empire. So keep in mind, you have an X and Y axis in a graph, the X horizontal axis is your independent variable. It's the explanatory variable. The y-axis is your dependent variable, what you're trying to explain, in this case the collapse of the empire. We're going to come across this very commonly and in social science you'll see it throughout your whole history here at Emory. Dependent variables, what you're trying to explain, independent variables, the things that are causing that to change. Okay. Well, we've covered actually only the first few pages so we're going to continue with us. We're going to continue with this on uh, Thursday and we'll get into the second novel. So by Thursday, finish reading this. We're a little bit we, we didn't get as much as we needed to get through today but that's that's normal when we start off a new novel and a new and a new topic and also we had that that fire that fire drill or whatever that thing was that delayed class a little bit. Okay. I will see you all. Make sure you have the the second novel read, which is Foundation and Empire, by Thursday, and I will see you then. Okay.